Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Again, Acts chapter 6. Now, by way of introduction, I want to do a very quick jet tour leading up to this because it's something I've been uh, indicating over and over again in my preaching in Acts, and I want you to see what's finally happened. In Acts chapter 1, we saw that the apostles were taught by Jesus Christ after he had risen from the dead that he was taught they were taught by Jesus Christ for quite some time on the issue of the kingdom of God. And in that they were told specifically go wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. Then in chapter 2 the Holy Spirit comes. And so the this this gathering of believers are there, the Spirit comes upon them, and it is just as the Scripture had promised. And out of that, Peter preaches a very powerful sermon about Jesus, and his point that he drives home in every possible way is that Jesus is the Messiah. We use the word Christ, which means the same thing, that he is the promised Messiah or Christ that the Old Testament had constantly spoke of. And therefore, we were to trust him. Unfortunately, what the Jews did was kill him, but God raised him from the dead. Many were saved on that day as they repented and trusted in Jesus Christ. At this point, many people were added to the church, but also the people of Jerusalem loved the church. They had a high view of the church. They were enjoying the people. By chapter 3, we see Peter as an apostle, healing a lame man. And then out of that, he then turns to the crowd and preaches again about Jesus Christ. And he does it in the bluntest of terms. And again, he does what they always do. He calls them, therefore, to repent, which is to have a change of mind and to turn and believe and follow Jesus Christ. Then in chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested, and the religious council known as the Sanhedrin investigates them. And in that, Peter again preaches the gospel. He preaches to them that it is Jesus Christ, that he is the promised Messiah, that in him is life and forgiveness, but that this is the one whom they crucified, they murdered, and God raised from the dead. As a result of all of that, they are possibly going to be executed, but they are saved and rescued by a man, uh, one of the men on the council, but they are beaten and told, do not talk. Now hear this, do not talk anymore about the name of Jesus, because everything that they were doing was in the name of Jesus, under his authority on behalf of him. So it wasn't just some people doing what they do. 
there was always and only people representing their Lord to the other people as they called them to repent and come and follow. Then in chapter 5, we saw that strange story of a husband and wife who are killed by God because they had lied about how much they were giving to the church for the helping of the needy. The point of that passage, though, was that at the end of it, and that is that a great fear came upon the church. And the reason for that, I argued, was that it was more important that God teach them to be more afraid of him than the people, the crowds, the government, this world. And therefore, they began to fear him. Why? It was all to prepare them to not be afraid of mankind as suffering begins to come upon them. And then as a result of all that, the apostles are arrested, they're tried, they're almost executed because they won't stop talking about Jesus as the Messiah. If you're getting my point, it's over and over again, always about the preaching in the name of Christ to the people for them to come to Jesus Christ and find forgiveness. Then in chapter 6, an opportunity arose to divert the apostles from that preaching because of a crisis within the church with the widows. But instead, because they had non-negotiables in their heart before God, they refused to be diverted from their job. They established instead a committee of godly men to oversee the care of the widows. And two of those men we will be looking at over the next few weeks, Stephen and Philip. So with that in mind, we now come to chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. And we find the first of those characters, Stephen. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. And yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him to, uh, excuse me, and they came upon him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. And they put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against his holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. The Lord bless his word. So what's going on in this passage? Well, up to now, I have told you repeatedly that this pleasant time, the wonderful time, the peaceful time for the early church was something that would only happen for a short period of time. That the storms of persecution were coming, and they started with the apostles, but now it's overflowing to the people, and it's going to rapidly take place now 
It is a time of suffering that is now upon the early church. But it comes, interestingly enough, in the presence of many wonderful things, and in fact very powerful things, that Stephen is able to do. We find now that Stephen, who was part of the men, the seven men put in charge of caring for these widows, we find out that this man, is, in fact, is also able to do works of miracles and is, frankly, an evangelist. And it's in that context that he is ultimately going to be arrested and confronted. Just like Peter and John, the apostles, Stephen now is going to be dealt with. And interesting enough, that just like Peter and John, and more importantly, just like Jesus, all of this is occurring while he's doing good things. He's healing people. He's doing works of power. The blind are seen. The lame are walking. The cancer is removed. The demon is exercised. All of this is good stuff, and yet somehow he finds himself arrested. Stephen is very busy doing good works. He is doing things that are genuinely helpful. He is doing exciting works. But as he does those works, what he is doing is he's preaching Jesus. And that cannot be tolerated. Beloved, let me, before I go any further, let me just make this very clear to you. We talk in our church about being missional, and we talk about engaging unbelievers and, and seeking to build relationships. All of that is good and proper, and I encourage you to do so. But understand, at some point, you have to talk to them about Jesus. And until you talk to them about Jesus, you have not done anything. And this is the reality that you find here in the book of Acts, is that these are wonderful things. We're not talking just coming over and mowing their lawn because the husband was ill that week, or a baby was born, and so we bring them some food and, and give them a kind word. We're talking about a baby is sick to the point of death and being healed. We're talking about serious situations in these people's lives, and they're being rescued from them. And the end result is that nonetheless he's arrested because along with those things, he is bringing to them the gospel. Do not miss that. And so what I want to do today is I want to take us through the story, consider what it means to be able to stand firm in the face of lies because that's what we see going on. The secret, if you will, is simply this, to be defined and controlled in some very specific ways. The passage, in other words, affords us the ability to see how Stephen remained firm in the midst of lies told about him, and from that I think we can learn some helpful things. Now, by way of background, I want to give you quickly some background because there's a lot of interesting details here that I don't want you to miss. First of all, know that there are two separate trials that take place in these short verses. The first trial is verses 9 through 11, and it involves this synagogue, which is a gathering place for Jews, the synagogue of the freedmen. And we see that it mentions that the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, along with people from Cilicia and Asia, worship there. 
That's the first trial. The second one, then, is before what he calls the council. The council is what it's always been. It's that Sanhedrin. It is that official body that meets and gathers at the temple, and they are the ones who are responsible for all things religious among the Israelites. This is the same Sanhedrin, and they're back to their dirty tricks. They had listened to Gamaliel, the Pharisee, who had said, look, if this is of God, it will go away. And if it's not of God, I mean, if, it, this, if this is a work of God, it will not go away. And if it is not a work of God, it will go away. So don't worry about it. They, they listened for a time, but already they're done with it. They're fed up. No, we have to step in, we have to intervene, we have to stop this preaching in the name of Jesus. And so it's time for them to go to the next step in quelling this new movement of Christ followers. Just as an aside, they weren't known as Christians at this time. The church was known, rather, as people of the way. The way. Most likely, that's what uh, they were called that because that's what they kept on saying is that Jesus is the way to forgiveness. Jesus is the way to life. Jesus is the way for all things. Most likely built off of the well-known statement that Jesus himself said when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man shall come to the Father except through me. Now we also have this thing called the synagogue. So we have two trials going on. Then we got this synagogue. And again, that's not something that's part of yours or mine life. But here's what I want you to remember. I've told you this uh, several times and I'll keep doing this throughout the book of Acts. Remember that paper is expensive. It's not even paper, it's called papyrus, and it's expensive, and you don't just have it hanging around your house. In fact, for most people, nobody had paper in their home or in their lives. What they would do is if they had to have something written down, a formal document, a formal letter, they would go to the marketplace, and there there would be stalls set up, and these would be professional letter writers. That was what their job was. They actually were educated and capable of writing, because most people couldn't, and you would hire them and pay them a fee, and then they would write the letter for you, and it would be on the papyrus. This is very expensive, and it's rare material. And so it's not something that you just doodle on and just do your own thing. And so space was always limited, and they always crammed as much writing onto those things as they can. With that in mind, what you want to ask yourself when you read the book of Acts is why some detail is included. Why is he talking about the synagogue of the freedmen? Why does he take up space to mention the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and Cilicia and Asia? Something's going on, and our eyes just kind of go right over it because we don't know. So I'm going to try to bring it out just a bit. I want to remind you, first of all, earlier in chapter 6, that we found that Stephan was a Hellenist, a Greek-speaking Jew. This is important for you to remember. This synagogue was one where the Hellenist Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, would go and worship. This is where they would go to hear the Old Testament read and they would then have it taught to them. This is a very important part of their social life. 
Now, why would they go there? Well, a Greek-speaking Jew would go there versus a different synagogue because in the other synagogues, they'd be speaking Aramaic. And they don't speak Aramaic, or it would be very weak for them. And so they naturally gather together to worship and to spend time here with other Greek-speaking Jews. Now, the synagogue is very important to the life of Israel. It was a place for prayers. It was a place where acts of charity would occur. In addition, it would serve as a banquet hall and a collection point for the funds that would go to the temple. But it also functioned in a very important way for our story, and that is it would function as a community court. And that is what we have going on here. Likely, now understand this, likely Stephen was a member of this court, um, this synagogue. This was his synagogue, just like Missio Dei is hopefully your church. And so when you think of that, and so your church takes care of its own business and worries about its own members. And so Stephen most likely was part of this, and that is why they are stepping in. They need to deal with the problem Stephen is causing, and they're going to deal with it in-house. They're not going to air the dirty laundry out. They want to take care of business among their own. And so this is why the synagogue of the freedmen step in and start dealing with them versus some other one. Now, that idea of a freedman is also interesting. Uh, it was part of the Roman Empire and the Roman system. Uh, to be a freedman meant you were at one point a slave, which was very much part of the Roman system. And as a slave, you could purchase your freedom or you could earn your freedom. It could be granted you by your master if you had done something unusually helpful. Maybe you, you stood and protected their son or daughter or maybe the wife or even the man himself who owned you. Regardless, through some unique act of service, he could then free you. Perhaps this was a, you were a slave that was assigned to him as a small boy, and as he grows up, you care for him, and, and there's a great love and care between the two of you, so that when he is able, he will then release you into freedom. Here's the thing, though. You had to be 30. And until you were 30, the law forbade you from being freed. But also, the freed persons were a distinct group of people. In the Roman system, there were different classes, from low class, which would be your slave, all the way up to the high class. And there's all these known levels. And again, this is something Americans really have a hard time understanding and figuring out. I frequently find myself in when I'm in my travels to Africa where honor and shame is so huge uh, to understand how that works. And I find myself frequently um, inadvertently stepping on cultural issues. A freed person was a distinct group of people. They were never allowed to marry a higher class woman. They only could marry within their level or below, and if they married someone below them, then that person was automatically elevated to their level of honor. They were also not allowed to serve in the Roman legions, and if they were invited to a banquet, they were to sit at a lower place setting. 
uh, again, at a banquet, you would come and everyone would arrange themselves in accordance to where they fit within the society. And then you would have the person of honor who would sit at the head. Now, in all of this, we have this reference of these freedmen and that this was where the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians would meet. All of the, both of those are, were major cities in northern Africa. Uh, Alexandria is still there. Cyrene is not. Cyrene was in uh, Lib- what is present-day Libya, and Alexandria is in Egypt. These were very major cities in that time. Alexandria itself was actually founded by uh, Alexander the Great, sorry, which is why it's called Alexandria. Um, Alexandria was an intellectual city, but both of them were cities where when the Greek Empire was spreading and conquering and they conquered Jews, what they would do is they would just take those Jews and move them to these cities and stick them in there. Because again, people don't care about a city that's not their city. And so what you naturally had is a large amount of Jews starting to settle into those areas because they were told to go there and they had to go there. Now, with the Roman Empire, there's some relative freedom and they've gone back to Israel, but they are not Jewish in the Hebrew sense. They don't speak Aramaic. They're not part of the land of Israel. Their customs, their dress, their food, everything is very much more in a Greek style and so they feel more comfortable among themselves, just like today. But also he mentions Cilicia and Asia. What's interesting with this is Asia is a a large area of land involving many cities and even nations. But what's interesting here is that Cilicia is already part of Asia. So you would wonder in your mind if I said, oh yes, we, we have people from uh, Canada and Mexico, and we have people from the United States and California. And you're like, isn't California part of the United States? Why, why are you saying it that way? Well, there's a reason. Some of you may have already figured that out. There's a very important person born in Cilicia. His name is Paul. At this point, he was named Saul. And at the end of Acts 7, if you want to just turn and look there, you see the very... Verse 58. Here is Stephen being driven out and killed. It says, and when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses, I'll explain that in my next sermon, the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And this is the first indication of this. So here's here's the picture. Here's what's going on. That Saul, who later would become the famous apostle Paul and who wrote most of the New Testament, is from Cilicia, and guess which synagogue was his synagogue? This one. And so you have these two personages. You have Stephen, who has come to faith in Jesus Christ and rapidly risen up as a man of God, uh, doing great uh, works of power, but more importantly, being a faithful evangelist. And here he is creating problems for the synagogue of the freedmen. And one of the men who is part of that synagogue is a man named Saul, 
And they had grown up together, likely. They had worshipped together. They had supped at each other's houses. So these are the details. They're very subtle. Two men, likely, who grew up together attending the synagogue, but each of them are going to be impacted by the gospel. But in different ways and in different times. But what I find most fascinating is how Stephen was likely the very first step in the conversion of Paul. And the step involved him being killed for his faith. So get that through your head that something's happening here behind the scenes that is not necessarily completely clear if we just skim read. So that's my background. And with those points as background, I want to show you three lessons out of this passage, and we'll just go through the passage on how you and I, when we're faced with lies, just like Stephen was, we can stand firm. As a Christian, when you are falsely accused regarding your faith as a Christian, how do you stand firm in a way that is honorable to God, how, how it brings honor to God? So very first, let's just jump right in. It's in verse 8. The first thing you need to do is you need to learn to, that you need to understand that you will be able to stand in the face of lies when you are a man or woman defined by grace. When you are a man or woman defined by grace. Verse 8, we just see it. Stephan, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Very simple. Well, let me say something. No one enjoys lies when they're told about you, do they? Some of you might be having that right now, that already you know of people who have attacked you and are lying about you, and it eats at your soul. Even less do you enjoy statements that are falsely representing what you actually did say. This is very common today, especially with the social media, but it's an age-old problem, and it shows up in our story as well. But listen, as a Christian, it's key for you to understand this. As a Christian, we have to think very, very hard before we face that kind of a situation or we're going to do something very foolish and stupid. We need to be prepared for the day when we're lied to and lied about and false witnesses arise up so that when they do that against you, that you're not looking all gobsmacked and wondering what happened and why are these people, why have they stabbed me in the back? Why are they saying all this? Oh, no, no, I'm not going to put up with that. And off you go with your phone and posts and foolish words that are said that you later regret. And the only way you can do that is by establishing what I've been talking about over the last two other weeks, and that is establish non-negotiables ahead of time. So what is the non-negotiable? Well, the Lord has, our Lord Jesus has already given us that. It's not hard. The Lord made it clear that we are to love who? Our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. That's not hard to understand, is it? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then you're like, well, yeah, I understand, but, okay, well, let's go a little further. The Apostle Paul, in Romans 12, verse 17, listen to this wording. He says, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. 
I challenge you to find the loophole. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. He says it a slightly different way, but just as clear in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 15. He says, see to it, this is a command, see to it that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always, notice, no one and always, always seek after that which is good for one another. And there we say, oh, that one another, that's talking about other Christians. So we're not supposed to do this among each other as Christians. And then he adds these words. Or anyone else. Or for or all the people. And you're like, well, that's Paul. All right, how about Peter? In chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, to sum up, so he's, he's like, okay, so I've said a lot. Now I'm going to sum up. By the way, it's in chapter 3. He ends his letter in chapter 5. So this is a very long conclusion, just like all preachers. He says, to sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead for you were called for the very purpose so that you might inherit a blessing. No wiggle room. No difficulty in understanding what is it that God is commanding. Stephan is now faced with a time, and you will be faced many times perhaps in your life, where people lie about you. They will lie about what you did. They will lie about what you said. They will do these types of things, sometimes in an informal sense and sometimes in a very formal sense, such as the court of law. These are very clear, though. They're very absolute. And what they do is they strike into the very heart of any Christian who is currently experiencing something like this. If you're not experiencing any sort of false accusations right now, you're good. You're like, yeah, that's what it says. But if you are here right now and you have been getting kicked in the face with these lies, you know that this is a challenge. It confronts you. It lays you bare because the, the heart desires so often to seek that vengeance. So how are you going to do that? How? How do you do that? How do you give a blessing? How do you lift them up in prayer? You only do it when you learn to walk in the grace of God. Notice again, verse 8. He's doing some good works of power, very wonderful works of power. Where is he doing it, though? Just two quick questions that I want you to observe in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. So where was he doing these great works? It's among the people. Among the people of Jerusalem. Just the people, not the church. The people. I only point that out because it's a, it's a consistent annoyance to me. How we have relegated what we think, we have all kinds of people claiming to be miracle workers and experiencing the power of God and the blessing of God in their life, and they're always doing these conferences wherever, but it's a thing offered primarily to people who would claim, at least, 
to be a Christian. This is not some exciting tent meeting or miracle conference for Christians. Peter is just out among the people. It's a man who is just walking and living life. He's, he's taking a walk down the street. He's going to the marketplace. Wherever he's going, he is among the people. But he has this ability given by God to be able to deal with their struggles. He's encountering the sick, the blind and such. And out of that, he does these amazing works of power. Again, he's among the people, literally in their midst. He's not up on some stage where everything is being carefully choreographed and people are only being allowed to get near him who are first uh, vetted, if you will. I remember Johnny Erickson talking about how she was so desperate to not be a quadriplegic when she was young that she began to come to every miracle worker there was. And, and she would have her father bring her, and she was paralyzed from the neck down, and she would go, and she said that always what would happen is the moment they saw her, the, the workers would get her over to the side where she wouldn't bother anyone. They were too busy making the lo- short leg long and the mysterious backache go away to deal with some quadriplegic. Here's Stefan just living life among the people. The second question is then how? How is he doing all of this? Well, notice it doesn't actually say here, does it? So let's think about this. So far, we've got six chapters of Acts that's been teaching us, and everything that we have seen is that whenever these works of power are done, they're done not because the guy is some unique person, but because they were doing it in the name of Jesus. Remember, when you do something in the name of Jesus, it's not some magic phrase that then makes something come out of your wand or something like that. It is simply the fact that I am now representing, I am here under the authority of Jesus Christ, I represent him, and therefore whatever I say or do is consistent with him, and it is Jesus who is doing it. And there is no reason to think that somehow Stephen decided to start his own miracle-making business, but that he, a man who is a godly man, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom, is a man who simply among the people, and in the name of Jesus, he encounters somebody, and he then does these good, powerful works. This means simply that he's not healing then like Oprah. You get a miracle, you get a miracle, you get a miracle, we all get a miracle. It's just simply him encountering the individuals and saying, in the name of Jesus, see. In the name of Jesus, walk. And in all of that, there is no reason to doubt that he is doing anything other than that and then preaching to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's how he gets himself into trouble. It's not because some kid who is blind now sees. It's because of what he's saying along with that. But notice right now how he is described. He's described as being full of grace, full of power. Now that word full, we've talked about this repeatedly. There are different words in uh, Greek that we translate as full, but this one speaks not of that unique empowerment where God comes upon you in such a way that all of a sudden explosive things are happening. This is a man who is 
full or under the abiding control of these things, of his power and his grace are what control him and influence him. And here is the key one, that he was constrained and directed. He was constrained and directed and defined by grace. In other words, to be full of grace means that it defines you. When you look at a man or a woman in our church and you are looking for something to describe them as, you may very well just simply say, that woman is a gracious woman. That's all you're saying. They're full of grace. It defines them. It's the grace of God, beloved, that causes him to be among the people, right? That as he's among them, he sees their burdens and he doesn't turn away. He saw their needs. He knew that he could meet those needs and therefore he did. Why? Because he's a man full of grace. The scripture says if you have it in your power to relieve the burden of another and you don't do it, it's sin. He was just a man of grace. He wasn't showing off. He had that ability. It is the grace of God that saved him, right? It was the grace of God where he himself found life and through that he found life in Christ. It was the grace of God that had that, that the Father sent the Son to save sinners. It's the grace of God that gave him the knowledge that those who follow Jesus will suffer in one way or another. So now as the lies are beginning to happen, as he's out there among the people and he's preaching and he is healing and whatever else he's doing and the lies are starting to come and the attacks are coming, he's not like, what's going on? I'm doing good things. Leave me alone. He already has the grace of God in the way of having been instructed in what to do. He knows. He's not shocked. It was the grace of God that gave him the teaching of Jesus on how to face that suffering. Beloved, you and I will never properly learn to see those who are openly hostile to God until you and I are willing to walk a life that's defined by the grace of God. Some of you have enemies, and all you see is an enemy. And you're not looking through eyes of grace. While we were yet, what? Enemies. Christ died for us. Praise God that God did not only see you as an enemy. Go, if you would, to Ephesians 4. If you, if you have the Pew Bible, and you're not sure where it's at, it's actually on page 152. Ephesians 4. Paul writes this. Ephesians 4, verse 1. Paul is turning the corner in this letter. And he's now going to begin to talk about the application of what he has just taught in the first three chapters. And he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, because he's in prison right now for being a Christian, I, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you, beg you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. He wants you to walk in a manner that's fitting with how you were called by God. So what is that? We'll turn back one page, most likely, to chapter 2 
we could actually read all of chapters 1, 2, and 3, but we won't. But chapter 2 is sufficient. And just the first nine verses. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For what purpose? In order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. That's what you're to walk in. You're to walk in the fact that I was once far off and God has brought me near. I was once his enemy and God made me alive together with Christ Jesus. I have seen the grace of God in my life. All of us were enemies, beloved, until grace came through Jesus Christ. We were all hostile in mind until the grace of God. We were all liars and mockers and deniers of God until grace came. But grace did not come through Christ our Lord, or rather, grace did come through Christ our Lord, and together we were made alive with Him. And so when we walk in that reality of undeserving grace in our lives, it begins to change us like it did Stephen. It begins to conform us to the likeness of Jesus. And this results in an upright life before God and man. We conduct our life, our walk, in a proper manner. So the psalmist says it this way in Psalm 84. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. So when faced with lies, may I suggest this to you? That before you say something, before you post something, before you react, that you pull back just for a moment and think about the many ways God has shown you grace. How has God shown me grace so that I might respond in grace, so that I might be a man or woman full of grace? And may I suggest even more that you make it your habit to do it now before those accusations come, so that when the accusations come and the lies and everything else that happens, you're ready for it. Don't say, everything's good, I'll do it tomorrow. Consider the grace of God. Remember our Lord, if you ever wonder what you should do, when he was on the cross and he looked upon all of the people jeering and mocking him, and he uttered those grace-filled words, Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. So the first way you're going to ever stand in the presence of lies against you is if you are a man or woman who can 
learn to walk in grace. A second way is that you stand in the face of lies when you speak with wisdom. Back in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, but some of the men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians, Alexandrians, some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen, and yet they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Again, you stand firm in the face of lies when you speak with wisdom. The problem in this passage had nothing to do, again, with the miracles that Stephen was doing. It had to do with his words. That's why they had to argue with him. They weren't arguing, ah, he's he's still blind. Uh Ah, he's still lame. No, that wasn't the argument. That's why I know that what Stephen is doing is he's healing people or doing these works, but he's also speaking. And it was what he was saying that they were upset about. Notice, in fact, the whole idea of speech is throughout this passage. In verse 9, it talks about argued. In verse 10, speaking. In verse 11, it says, say, speak, words. Verse 13, speaks. Verse 14, say. A whole lot of words are going on. Some of them true, some of them not. But for Stephen, there was only one way to speak, and we see it in verse 10. It was with wisdom. With wisdom. Now understand that the problem would be what this man was claiming he did while he did these miracles, right? It would be in that name of Jesus, the very thing the religious leaders had already told the apostles to stop doing. The people being healed would be astonished, for how could they be healed? And the answer was through Jesus. Well, then who is Jesus? That would be the next question, right? If you were lame and you had been paralyzed and all of a sudden this man comes and he sees you and he says, in the name of Jesus, I command you to stand up and walk and you're walking now, you want to know stuff, right? Don't tell me that you're like, hey, thanks, bub, and you go off to the bar to get a beer. You would want to know. You'd want to understand. Tell me more. Who is this Jesus? Well, he's God. In human flesh, he is the promised one for Israel. He is the Messiah or the Christ. He is the one whom you murdered, and yet God raised from the dead. This Jesus, the King of kings, he now is calling you. You can see this all happening with Stephen. He is now calling you, turn from your rejection of him and your sins and follow him. And that's where the arguing starts. But Stephen will not descend to that level. He doesn't go back. Some of you may be defined by your hard arguing words. When somebody says something to you, you react. You get the phone out, if it's on Facebook or whatever, and you got to nail them back, right? Your thumbs are typing a mile a minute. Why? Because you didn't appreciate that comment. And you got to make something known. But it lacks wisdom. And it's probably not being driven by grace. Stephen won't do it. They're arguing with him. They're denying it. They don't like what he's saying. And he continues to speak to them with wisdom. And that's what we need to understand. 
Remember also that it's not just wisdom, but the Spirit. He is speaking with wisdom and the Spirit. Why are they together? Well, because we've taught you this, and I want to remind you it again. The Spirit of God is always going to be attached to the Word of God. So if you have the Word read, if you have the Word spoken, if you have the Word preached, or even sung, which we've done all of that today, you have the full confidence that the Spirit is there. Because the Word and the Spirit are never separate. Ever. They're one and the same. So wisdom, then, in the Bible, is the Word of God used well. Wisdom is never just being clever. It always begins with the person of God and the life that is arranged under God. And therefore, you learn to skillfully live out your life under the Word. You're a wise, if you're a wise man or woman, you are a person who is a godly person, who lives life well. And so when lies are said, you don't counter them with your own lies. You know that's not going to be acceptable. You don't descend into a fit of shock and outrage. You don't lose heart or become embittered. Instead, you return with speech that's full of biblical wisdom. That's what he's doing. They want to argue with him, and he just keeps giving them. But the Word says, the Word says, the Word says. In fact, when we look next week at... I am preaching next week, right? Um, Next week, then, we'll look at his sermon, and you're going to just see him recite the whole Old Testament in his, this sermon. It's just, here's the word. You deal with it, and he gets killed for it. In Proverbs 16.21, it says, The wise in heart will be called understanding, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. That, half, that second half of that proverb has been quoted in our house by my wife, Possibly, yeah, Maddie's uh, nodding, four million times. You know, when the sister and brother, they start, boom, not that I would ever get involved with that, or even Kim. And then out, we hear my wife's voice. Sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Yes, mom. Yes, mom. Sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Why? Because it's flowing from a wise heart. In Proverbs 10.11, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. Is your mouth that? Is that what you're known for? Are you a fountain of life, not because of any other reason, but that you speak born out of the word? But the mouth of the wicked, he says, conceals violence. You only need to read and reread the Gospels to simply see how Jesus lived this out in the fullest way. Whenever he was opposed, how he would speak to them. But right, wise speech is never done simply to win the argument. And that's the challenge. When you get into some argument where somebody is arguing with you and trashing you and, and starting to say lies about you, your goal is not to just prove them wrong and win. Why speech is spoken? Because it's the only speech you're allowed to say. How often do you think that? All of us can grow in that. I speak wise words, not because I'm trying to win the argument, but because that's what I'm supposed to do. It's your duty. 
It has no bearing upon how you feel or what you want to accomplish. Your life is to be derived from a biblically wise heart that speaks biblically wise words. Wise speech is the only thing fitting the servant of a most high, the Most High God. Now, third, you will stand in the face of lies when you are controlled then by the Spirit. That's the second part of verse uh, 9, no, 10, and all the way down to the end. I want you to notice the progression. Stephen did miracles. He did wonders in the name of Jesus. This creates tension with the others in the synagogue who then begin to argue with him. He spoke, in turn, with skill and grace, but those in opposition then have to go to lies and then bring violence, and then finally, through, the, through lies, accuse him of violence. So they completely flip the, the tables by the end of this chapter. They start out with, we don't like what you're saying. He then responds with wisdom and grace. They can't counter that argument. So now they come back with lies and, and he continues to respond in grace. So now they drag him to the second place for a more formal court where they lie again about him, and then ultimately the lie turns upon him, that he's the one doing all the violence. We see that still to this day played out. This is Stefan's situation. And listen, I, I can't prove this, but I suspect that as this whole thing was playing itself out, there came a point when Stefan said in his brain, I'm not going to get out of this alive, am I? This is it. And he has to make choices. What am I going to do? How am I going to handle this? He could see, I believe, where it was heading. And he was at peace about it. If verse 15 means anything. You don't look like you have a face of an angel when you are furious or terrified. But when you're at rest... You'll be fine. Beloved, if you and I fear death, then when the witnesses will lie about you, it will become a horrible time where you will fight, you will scream, and you will strike out in any way possible because you fear death. But if you're a man or woman filled with the wisdom and the word of God, then what you will find is that you will be a man or woman who is controlled by the Spirit of God in that time, which means you are then will be a person who is filled with peace and gentleness. And you say, well, I'm not so good at that right now. Well, keep growing. But you will find that in that day of testing that God will not abandon you. In Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, he says that the fruit of the Spirit of a life controlled by the Spirit is this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's why I have no problem thinking this, is that if you are a man or woman filled with biblical wisdom and the Word of God, and that is how you conform your life, in that day of testing, you'll be fine. 
it will still be ugly, and it will still be unrighteous and unfair, and maybe a little scary, maybe a lot scary, but you will find that God will settle you through the Spirit. To walk by the Spirit is then to be a person conformed to the actual commands of the Scripture, not merely discussed. We love to discuss the Scripture. We love to discuss the commands of the Scripture. We're not so hot necessarily when it comes to living them out. Too many can pass a Bible exam while they fail at a biblical life. And James, the apostle, would say that this person should fear for their soul. The lies are still rolling out on Stephen. They keep speaking with, and he keeps speaking with wisdom and the Spirit. And in reality, he had no other option or desire. There was no plan B. Well, I'll try to, you know, you're, you're in a difficult situation and it says, that if you speak gentle words, you can turn away wrath, right? And you're like, oh, oh, I'm going to try that. So you speak gently and they get madder. So then you abandon that. You see, that was only plan A and you kept plan B, which is punch the guy in the face as your option, right? There was no plan B for him. He doesn't have any other options. They were making themselves out to be his enemies so he knows what he's got to do. He knows what his Lord commanded him to do, and that's what he does. So he shows them grace, he shows them wisdom, and he only speaks what is true. Beloved, if your hope is found in this age and life, then this situation is absolutely frightening or infuriating to you. For some of you, if you hear these words, you're saying, "Uh uh-uh, no, no. But that's because your hope is only here. But if your hope rests upon Christ when he, and the promise that he will make all things new, then you will find, beloved, that it is enough for you to know that you're innocent before God. And so he's here before a crowd of men who have incredible power and watching others lie through their teeth for the express purpose to condemn him. And he's at peace. The powers of this age keep thinking that they're far more powerful than they really are. They can't touch him. They can take his life, but only God is able to then raise him again. They can spew forth lies, but truth always comes out in the judgment of God. They thought he would fear those who could bring death to the body, but the reality is that he has far greater fear for the one who can bring destruction to the soul, and that is to whom he entrusts himself. So let me wrap all of this up, and don't start putting stuff away. It's one of those kinds of conclusions. Stephen was never alone in this, beloved. Never. You don't see anything other than one man with a bunch of people against him, right? He's alone, but he's not alone. Even though to his enemies it looks like he was alone. He knew what Jesus had said in Matthew 28. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Or what Hebrews 13, 5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. 
He had a very dark journey ahead. But it was down a very well-worn path of others who went before him to the grave. But every step of the way, his Savior and his King was with him. There was never a point where God said, Stephen, this part you have to walk alone. It was all with him. The only one who ever went alone to the grave was Christ. For sins that he had never committed to bring life to those who did not deserve it. When your time comes, he will be with you. He always is. So let me end this with some additional observations. No rhyme or reason as to the order, just some thoughts. This is stuff I wrote while I was in bed, supposedly going to sleep. First, the length of one's ministry and life is unimportant. It's, it is the faithfulness in that life that matters. This guy is saved probably on the day of Pentecost. The church has only been around for a few months. He grows wonderfully in the Lord to the point that he's a man of God, trusted and full of the wisdom and spirit and word of God. He starts preaching to people. He's doing miracles. He's doing all of that stuff. And then he's killed. And it was perfect. It was fine. Never do you think about the length of your ministry or the length of your life. That doesn't matter. Just be faithful in it. Second, the breadth of one's influence is also unimportant. It is the faithfulness in it. He never got beyond Jerusalem. But because of his death, the gospel went throughout the world. What's going to happen, in, happen to him in the next chapter is what drives the Christians to flee, and with them they bring the gospel. You and I sit here having heard the gospel and believing the gospel because Stephen was killed. We're all about our brand and our marketing and pushing and trying to get the clicks and trying to get the shares and everything else. But in the end, the only thing that matters is have we been found faithful wherever God put us? Third, the response to one's words and deeds is unimportant. It's the faithfulness in them. This is something parents need to hear, spouses need to hear, employees need to hear, frankly, all of us need to hear. The response to your words and your actions is unimportant. It's your faithfulness in them. Parents are killing themselves sometimes wondering, what are we doing wrong? And maybe you are doing stuff wrong, or you're doing stuff right, and it doesn't seem to be working. Doesn't matter, beloved. Be faithful in it. You don't do these things because they work. You do them because they're right. You see the difference? And that, that's hard. Because we live in a, a, a lie in our nation where everything is supposed to work out if you do all the right things. And that's not how God functions. 
Christ did not save you so you can then go reach some world-bound life goal. Let me read. It wasn't hard. I just went on and found inspiring messages, memes on the internet. Here's what one guy said. Very popular. He says, surround yourself with dreamers and doers, the believers and the thinkers. But most of all, surround yourself with those who see greatness within you, even when you don't see it yourself. That'll put you in hell. That might sell product. It might get a lot of clicks. You might get people with a little heart emoji saying, oh, I just needed that word today. Thank you. Sorry. That's how I imagine them speaking. Christ did not save you so that you can find the greatness within you. There is nothing great there. You're a sinner. Worthy of his condemnation, but by grace he saved you. God saved you so he could display his love for you through Christ. He saved you to display his infinite grace in saving a sinner. Did God fail Stephen and his ministry? No. On the contrary, he brought him home. Let me turn this slightly different with a few more comments. At the same time, in your life as a follower of Jesus, learn to enjoy it and don't walk around so sad. Can you learn to enjoy the freedom and the forgiveness in times of sorrow? Know that he sympathizes in the fullest sense with you. He bears your weakness. He rejoices with you in your joy. So when you're sad, he's there with sympathy as a faithful high priest, and you're, when you're filled with joy as you hold your little baby or whatever it is, that he rejoices with you. But when it is time to stand and confess him, know that he presses in even more closely to you. There will come that day, that moment, when you realize everything's done, and you're going to be just like Stephen. Now, for some of you, it might be before a crowd, but for many of you, it will be in a hospice bed. Doesn't matter. Death is before you. So find rest in knowing that it's all still in the hands of the one who bears the scars of the cross, whose nail-pierced hand is even now reaching out to bring you to your eternal reward and life. And when that happens, you will realize there is no loss. Listen to what one of my favorite authors writes, Octavius Winslow. He says, Then, O my soul, be not over-anxious about your future. God is faithful, Jesus is unchangeable, and all that the Lord your portion has been, He is now. And He will be in all future trouble, sickness, and death. An all-sufficient, all-loving, all-faithful deliverer, never leaving or forsaking you until he has delivered you out of the miseries of this sinful world, having your perfect consummation and bliss in body and soul in his eternal and everlasting kingdom. Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. 
Beloved, in our day, there are countless who set themselves up as experts in the affairs of the soul, but whose minds are darkened in unbelief. Don't be impressed and don't be afraid. Stay with biblical truth. Stay the course. Stay with the gospel. So that even when their lies and false judgments happen, the true judge will still see all, and he will still render his verdict against all, whether it be good or for ill, he shall render it. Be found safe in Jesus Christ, and you will face no wrath from your Lord. Let's pray. Father, I I do pray that you'd help us. I I have no doubt as I watch our nation descend into blatant, open rebellion of every sort. And we wring our hands and we flame the internet and we talk and plot and plan. And we talk such a great talk, but Lord, there comes that time when we just simply need to stand to be heard as Christians. And in that, I pray that each one of these people here at Mission will be found faithful. They will not deny you in that day. They will be faithful to stand and declare that Christ is my Lord. This will only happen, Father, if they truly are in you. Therefore, make it all the more clear to them where their trust and hope lies. Bring them to that point when they are at rest with you. For the many, perhaps, who are here who do not know you, who are merely going through the outward efforts and actions, I pray that you would impress upon them their desperate need to be saved through Christ. I pray that the Spirit would work in that way. Let us be men and women speaking the words of hope in your Son's name. Amen.